really good to see you guys this morning. If uh, you and I have not met, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church, and I have the great privilege of opening God's word for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, which is where we left off uh, last week. We're going to start back at verse 18. You know, it's not a, just to set this up a little bit, it's not a stretch to say that this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is where all of the book of Hebrews has been heading. And we, you know, when we read at the beginning of this letter, it says that Jesus, that through Jesus, God is bringing many sons to glory. And we get a picture of that glory right here because it's going to say we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem to the city of the living God where the people of God are both happy and holy forever. And so so not only is this where all of Hebrews has been heading, but it's also where all of human history is heading, either to eternal joy with God or eternal judgment apart from God. So we have a lot of ground to cover in this passage. So we're gonna do things a little differently than we normally do. I wanna read the passage first. So we get a sense of what's being said said here, and then we're going to spend some time walking our way up to it. So this is Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, we also have this printed for you in the bulletin. This is God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray now for all of us that you would give us eyes to see what is really here, that you would give us ears to hear you speaking through your word this morning, that you would give us hearts to embrace the joy that you are offering to us this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. If you were here, this passage that we're looking at comes right on the heels of what Brian preached on last week, where the writer said there, he said, strive 
for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Which if you're a Christian, that's the goal, right? That's the prize. That's the reward that we all want. Is that we want to see the Lord in all of his glory. And then he says, if this is truly what you want to see, then see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then to illustrate what he means by that and to warn us, he gives the example of Esau, right? Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. My intention this morning is not to re-preach that text, but I don't want us to miss the point there because it's important to understanding our passage. Because if you remember, from way back in Genesis... Esau was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And it was with Abraham that God had made a covenant. He made a promise that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that he would be God to him and to his offspring after him, and that he would give them a land as an inheritance. And then you come to Genesis chapter 25 and to Esau, right? Esau is the firstborn son of Isaac, which meant He was the heir of all that his father possessed. And not only was the heir of all that his father possessed, but he was the heir of all that God had promised to him. And it says there that he came in from the field. He's exhausted and he's hungry. And his brother Jacob is there making some stew. So what does Esau do in that moment? He does the unthinkable. That he sells, he bargains off his birthright for some bread and a bowl of soup, and he fails to inherit the blessing. And when my wife and I got home from church last week, and we were just talking about this and commenting on this, how ridiculously foolish was that? We need to sit on that for a little bit. Like, you gave up your inheritance, your blessing for that? I mean, get some perspective here, right? But here's the thing. I think that's precisely the sort of reaction we are meant to have when we hear stories like that. Because what he did in that moment, what Esau did in that very moment, didn't make any sense in light of all that he gave up in order to get. It made absolutely no sense that he would give up that blessing for that bowl of soup. And here's where it gets really personal for us. This is the the punchline. That like Esau, if we persist in our sin, preferring what will satisfy us in the moment to what will satisfy us forever, we are in danger of doing the same thing with the inheritance that we have received in Jesus. Because friends, sin is like that bowl of soup. And we are making an exchange every time. And the lesson we learn there is that it's not a good exchange because what God has promised us in Jesus is far better than what he has promised to Esau and to the people of Israel. And we get a picture of that in our passage. But before we move on, let me give a a modern made-up example of Esau. The other day, Nat and I were watching a show, and on this particular episode, uh, two of the main characters are about to welcome their first baby, a son. So he's the firstborn they're clearing out a, a room uh, to use for his nursery, and they're getting rid of things. And the wife inadvertently sells her husband's, what he says, are priceless Star Wars action figures, which sounds like an oxymoron to me, but let's just go with that. But the point is, he really wanted to be able to pass these things down to his son. And so she de- what she do? She desperately tries to buy 
them back from the guy that she sold them to, but he wasn't going to have any of it because he knew the treasure that he had and he wasn't about to give it over, not for anything. Now that illustration isn't perfect, but it gets at the same idea. Like like Esau, who she had sold something that was priceless for some pennies. And when she wanted it back, like Esau, it was too late. And we see the same thing playing out in our text. And it's even the same language there. That if you want to see the Lord, if you want to see the Lord, then see to it that you don't refuse the Lord who is speaking to you. And what he is speaking to us this morning is that he has something far better for us. Because if we refuse the gift that God has given us through his son, which will satisfy you and me forever by trading it in on some trinket or trifle, like stuff, just more stuff or sex or like Esau, a bowl of soup because those things sound better to us. The day is coming when we won't be able to get it back. Now, I want us to hold on to that thought for just a minute because we're going to come back to it. But let me take an even bigger step back. Throughout the series, we've been saying that this letter was originally written to Jewish Christians which meant that they had left Judaism for Jesus and some of them are tempted to go back. And if you've been here, maybe you've been asking yourself, why? Why is that even on the table in light of who Jesus is and what he has done? And given what we just said about Esau, that's not even close to being a good trade. Or, to make it a little more personal for us here this morning, we could ask, you know, why do people like us in the church who hear the good news of Jesus Christ week in and week out walk away from the faith? Now, obviously, there can be lots of reasons for that, but let me bring up two big ones that we find right here in this letter, and both are relevant to our passage because both can sabotage faith. And those two things are suffering and sin. Suffering and sin. Both can cause us to lose sight of what we have received in Christ. That's being talked about here. A kingdom that can't be shaken. Which is infinitely better than whatever we might lose in this life through suffering. Some of us have lost a lot through suffering. And he's better than whatever we might love more in this life than him, which is sin. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Here's what we know about these Christians. At some point, they had suffered persecution. Following Jesus Christ had cost them considerably. And one of the places that we see this most clearly in this letter is in chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Let me read it for us. He says there, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you are being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. Now get this. <laughs> Look how astonishing this is. We'll come next. It says, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. Now, I don't want us to spend a a whole lot of time on this, but here's what I want us to see. Did did you catch how they responded to suffering when it came? It says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, which would be easy for us 
to fly past without pausing to consider what he just said. Because in essence, what they were saying in their suffering is you, you can take the house. Like you can take the cars. You can take everything I own. You can even put me in prison. You can even put me to death. Now the question is, how was that even possible? How did they have such a posture towards their possessions so that they could joyfully give it all up? He gives the answer there. He says it's because they knew that in Jesus they had a better possession and an abiding one. And so to bring that back to our text, they knew that they had received a kingdom, an inheritance that they could not lose through suffering, which is a city, right? It's the same city that Abraham is looking forward to in Hebrews chapter 11. So their joy was somewhere else and it was in something else which made it indestructible. It couldn't be shaken or stolen from them. They had faith in the promise of God that whatever they possessed in this life paled in comparison to what they would possess in the life to come, which is why they could joyfully say, take it all, because I have something better coming. And that's exactly what our passage is pressing in on us. It's this assurance that we've heard about, of things hoped for, this conviction of things not seen that will sustain us in suffering. Whether that suffering is cancer for us or career change, whether it's money trouble or marriage trouble, whether it's loss of property or loss of our pride, in whatever form it comes, faith says the one who has promised is faithful and though we can't see it or we can't touch it, at least, for not, at least not for now, it is real. It's more real and it's more enduring and it's more satisfying than whatever we might lose in this life because of it. It was true for the Christians in this text and it's true for us here this morning. I pray that God would help us to believe it. So suffering can either sabotage faith or it can strengthen faith. And for these believers and maybe even for some of us who are tempted to turn back because of it, he is pleading for us to keep looking up to fix our eyes on what can't be seen but by faith. Because we've come, because of what Christ has done for us, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to an inheritance, to a better possession and an abiding one, to joy that is full and forever, a joy that no suffering can shake. Now, what about sin? What is suffering? What about sin? We already saw this with Esau, and obviously we can't say everything that needs to be said. Sin is a big deal in the book of Hebrews because it's a big deal to God. But where this intersects with our passage is with the people of Israel. They're in the wilderness. They're on their way to the land of promise that God was giving them. Do you remember the reason that he gives as to why Israel did not take possession of the land of promise? Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, They were unable to enter because of unbelief. So in other words, they they didn't trust God. They didn't trust God to fulfill his word. But not only that, they didn't, they didn't worship God for his worth. Instead, they were preoccupied with momentary pleasures, and like Esau, they forfeited the promise of pleasures forevermore. 
And he knows that for us sitting here this morning, that sin can have the same effect on you and me, which is why he says there today, downtown Prez, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did. But take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, which is very similar to what he says in verse 25 of our text. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He is promising something better for you. Here's the thing that I want us to see. Sin is deceptive. I know you know this, but sin is deceptive and it's short-sighted. It's like Esau's bowl of soup that it satisfies in the moment, maybe satisfy you for a lifetime. But in the end, it leaves us empty. It's like a thief that steals true joy and puts a substitute in its place, and that substitute will never satisfy us. And so God is speaking to us this morning through his word. Don't make the exchange. Don't believe the lie. Trust in the faithful promises of God over the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because Jesus is not just better, hear this, Jesus is not just better than sacrifices and priests. He is that. But he's also better than sex and better than power. He's not just a better mediator and a better prophet, but he's also better than money and possession. So what he's saying here is that Jesus has something better for you, something that will indeed satisfy you fully and forever which is exactly what all of us want, isn't it? I challenge you to find a person who doesn't want that, to be satisfied fully and forever. A person doesn't exist because we all long for something that will last, something that will truly satisfy, that can't be shaken or stolen from us, that will sustain you and me even in our suffering. Even in our struggle with sin and what this writer has been saying all along and what he says here is it is found only in Jesus because we have come by faith with Christ to the city of the living God and what he has done and what he will do for you and what you have in him right now is so much better than anything that you might lose in this life through suffering and he is better than anything you might love more in this life which is sin because what we have in him To borrow the language of Psalm 16, we have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is our inheritance, our birthright. It's what awaits us, and it's what our passage is all about. And so with that, I want to divide, I want to spend the remainder of our time just looking at these verses, and here's how I want to divide up this text. First, I want to look at the welcome that we have in Jesus. We'll spend the bulk of our time there, the welcome that we have in Jesus, and then the warning. There's a warning in this passage, and then last the worship. Verses 18 through 24, he's contrasting the old covenant with the new. Between Mount Sinai, where God gave us his, his law, and Mount Zion, where God gave his grace. So first, let's look at Sinai. Here's the scene. God had saved his people out of slavery. Don't forget that. Saved his people out of slavery had supplied all of their needs, had set them on their way to the inheritance he had promised Abraham centuries before. And they come to Mount Sinai where God gives them his law that if they keep it, they'll take hold of the promise. If they don't keep it, 
They won't. And what transpires there is what we read about here. The people of Israel are standing at the foot of the mountain, and then suddenly God comes down and begins to speak to them. And what you see is that they are literally scared out of their minds at the sight and the sound of the presence of the living God. Look there at verse 18. He says, you, he's speaking to Christians, speaking to us, you have not come to what can be touched, to a physical mountain, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, a voice whose words made the heavens, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, it doesn't take much of an imagination to get at what is being highlighted here because what we see in these verses, and in fact, what we see in the entire Old Testament is a big spotlight on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, which means... God is to be feared because you and I deserve to be dead. God is to be feared because you and I deserve to be dead. The people of Israel didn't have to wonder whether or not God was holy and that they were sinful. Because they could literally see it with their eyes and they could hear it with their ears and they could touch it with their hands. If they were dumb enough to try to draw near and approach God, it was a death warrant. But even with the distance, they were terrified. And not only were they fearful, it says that Moses, the mediator, who was up on the mountain, he trembled with fear at the sight and the sound of God Almighty. And this is what you and I who are here this morning need to see. What Sinai and the Old Covenant shows us is that God who is holy can't be approached by sinful man because you and I can't keep God's law. We see that here at Sinai and we see it later on in the tabernacle and then later in the temple where the high priest, the mediator, at the risk of his own life, was able to go behind the veil into the most holy place to make atonement for sins. And even then, only once a year. What Sinai shows us, the Old Testament shows us, is that sinners can't dwell in the presence of a holy God. And that was true up until a certain man came along. This man who was the son of a carpenter, but who also happened to be the king of an unshakable kingdom, who also happened to be the son of God, or as the apostle John says in his first letter, whom we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon, we've touched him with our hands. That is, man couldn't dwell with God until God came to dwell with man. So I don't want us to miss the point of what he's about to say here. He's saying that Jesus, through his sacrifice for sin, provides something better for us than the fearful encounter with God at Sinai. Because remember, and we've seen this all throughout this letter, that all the prophets, all the priests, all the sacrifices, the temple, even Jerusalem itself, all those things that could be seen and touched things that find their beginning right here, that all of them, every single one of them were but placeholders. They served a purpose until the person to which they were always pointing to came, which is no, none other than Jesus himself. 
So God has something better for us than Sinai and something better than the possession that was promised there. And he's going to show us what it is. Listen to how he describes it beginning in verse 22. He says, but you, Christian, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There is so much packed in there in those verses that we could easily spend a few sermons unpacking it. But let me just highlight a couple things. I think it'd be, it's really easy for us to read a passage like this and really have difficulty making a connection to our life because it sounds too ethereal, Right? But it, I mean, it is that because it's talking about heaven. It's a picture of heaven here. Because I was, I was thinking about this this past week, about these verses, and I couldn't stop thinking about my grandpa, a man who I adored, deeply loved this man who was larger than life to me as a little boy. He came to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade in Pittsburgh. He was diagnosed with brain cancer in his early 50s. And I got to watch him suffer so well and never losing his confidence in Christ. And I remember so many times sitting on his back porch singing hymns about God, about Jesus, about heaven. I remember the last day of his life and the very last words I ever said to him as a 12-year-old boy. He was unconscious at that point, but I leaned over, I gave him a kiss on his head and I said, I love you, Pop. And I'll see you in heaven. Last words I ever ever said to him. And that's a promise that I intend on keeping. So I, I can't help but think about my grandpa. Maybe you're here this morning. You're thinking about somebody else. I can't help but think about that when I read these verses. Because what's being described here is not make-believe. It's not fairy tale. But it is more real than anything that we can take in with our senses because he, along with all those who have trusted in Jesus, are there right now in the presence of God and where suffering and sin are not. And for us here this morning, it is the better and the abiding possession that we will all take hold of if we hold on to his promise. But I want us to see the contrast he's making with Sinai because the assembly that is being described here, they are not fearful. The people described in these these verses, they are not fearful. They are happy and they are holy. Happy and holy. Now, where am I getting happy from? I'm getting happy from the language there in verse 23, the language of firstborn. Remember, the, the, the firstborn is the one who receives the inheritance from his father. All that his father possesses belongs to him. And what we have seen, even in this letter, is that Jesus is the firstborn son of God. He's the heir of all things. And by faith in his sacrifice, he has made us brothers and sisters with him so that all that belongs to him now belongs to us. We believe that. A kingdom that cannot be shaken by suffering or by sin, which means we will be happy with him forever. And not only that, but we will be holy. Because as you see there in verse 23, those who are here while they await the resurrection are described as the spirits of those who are made perfect. 
So unlike those who assembled at Sinai who were fearful and couldn't approach God because of their sin here at Zion, the gospel, they are happy and they are holy and therefore they are welcomed into the very presence of God because what we see here is a picture of a festival, of a feast. It's a time of celebration when all the assembly of Israel would flood into Jerusalem. Their happy days. They'd flood into Jerusalem. They'd gather around the temple to worship God and to give him thanks for all that he had done. But this isn't the earthly Jerusalem, is it? And there is no mention of a temple here. But this is the heavenly one, which is what, again, what the earthly city of Jerusalem has always been pointing to. We see it being described in Revelation 21. He says there that he saw the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let that land on you. This is the future that awaits those who have faith in Jesus. This is the possession, the inheritance that God has promised to us. But the question is, how is it even possible that you and I get to inherit it? That sinners like us get to dwell with a holy God forever. The answer is found there in verse 24. And this is really good. It's because it says we have come to Jesus. To the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now why does he bring up Abel there? Do you remember what happened to Abel back in Genesis chapter 4? It says that he was righteous and he had offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. And what does his brother do, do to him because of that? His brother Cain killed him for it. And it says that Abel's blood cried out to God for justice and retribution and a curse was placed on Cain. You see where all this is going? Then Jesus comes along. He was also righteous. He also offered to God an acceptable sacrifice with his sinless life by being murdered by sinners like you and me. But unlike Abel's blood that cried out to God for justice, Jesus' blood cries out for mercy and pardon for the very ones who killed him so that we could receive not only the blessing of God, but that we could be brought to God himself, which means none of us deserve this inheritance. We have all squandered it. This is the good news of the gospel of grace that is put on display and on offer to us here, that we get God and all that belongs to God forever, which leads to the warning in this passage. And I'll just say a brief word on this. You see it there beginning in verse 25. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, Israel, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If Israel died in the wilderness, outside the promised land, because they refused to listen to God and to heed his warnings, and because they preferred other things to him and to his promise, even after he had saved them 
from slavery, if they failed to take possession of an earthly inheritance because of their sin, then we who have received an eternal inheritance that can't be shaken or stolen, who have been saved from something far worse than slavery, that we've been saved from sin and hell forever, that if we reject God and his word and we plug our ears to what he says and we prefer other things to the promise that he holds out to us in Christ, we will not receive the infinitely greater inheritance that is spoken of here. And that becomes deadly serious. Because in verse 26, he begins to talk about judgment. And he quotes from the prophets there that God is coming to judge the world. God is coming to judge the world. That when he spoke at Sinai and the ground shook and the people trembled in fear at his presence, when God comes in the end, he'll not only shake the earth, but he'll shake the heavens. And people will fear for eternity. And so what he is saying is that day is coming like it did for Esau when it will be too late to repent, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. And as he says earlier in this letter, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And so the offer before us, like it was before Esau, is either eternal joy or judgment. Satisfaction in God forever or separation from God forever. And when we consider things in those terms and in that light, it's not even a close call. Because we all want joy. We all want joy. And we all want satisfaction forever. And it's found only by faith in Jesus. So when we consider the wrath of God that all of us deserve because of our sin, That instead of wrath, we get the welcome of God because his wrath fell on Jesus so that it doesn't fall on us in the end. Brothers and sisters, it makes the gospel all the more beautiful and precious, which leads us to the third and the last thing. What sort of response, what reaction should this provoke in us? We who have received such a blessing a kingdom that can't be shaken, a joy that's full and forever, welcome instead of wrath. The answer is found there in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And there's so much that we could say about this, and you guys know I love to say a lot, but let me end like this. We have a VeggieTales children's book at home. It has the title, uh, I Thank God for This Day. I thank God for this day. I want to read the first part to you. This is how it goes. It says, I thank God for this day, for the sun in the sky, for my mom and my dad, for my piece of apple pie, for a home on the ground, for his love that's all around. That's why I say thanks every day. And listen to this last part. Because a thankful heart is a happy heart. I'm glad for what I have. That's an easy way to start. Now, that's a children's book. But I think for the adults in the room, we have something to learn from it. Are you you glad for what you have in God? Yes, for all of his gifts that we get to enjoy in this life, like apple pie. But are you glad for the gift of a kingdom that can't be shaken because God himself is there? 
where everything that was stained by sin and stolen by suffering in this life will seem silly and small when we see the God of glory and will be satisfied in him alone, where we will be happy and holy forever. This is the greatest gift that you and I could be given. Because here's the thing about gratitude. When we are truly grateful for receiving a gift, whatever that gift is, we're truly grateful for receiving a gift. We glorify the giver. Because out of the overflow of our thankful hearts, we say thank you for the gift. And that's what you and I do when we worship God. We're saying thank you for the gift. Which means that gratitude is at the very heart of what it means for us to believe the gospel. And so if that is true, the ingratitude is at the heart of every sin. Because it says no thank you for the gift and therefore it dishonors the giver. And God here this morning knows that we all struggle with ingratitude. We all struggle with sin. He knows that we are quick to forget how great the gift that's been given to us is that suffering and sin can cause us to lose sight. Which is precisely why he has given us this assembly. I'm talking about assemblies here in this passage. This is why God has given us this assembly, his church, one another, to remember how good we got it in the gospel. And it's why we gather around this table every single week, this tangible reminder of the gospel, that as we come, we feast and we fellowship with God right now by faith. But it's pointing us to an even greater feast to the day that when we come to Zion, to the city of the living God, when we will feast and fellowship with him forever. And the cup of blessing that we drink now points us to the blessing we will drink in full then. So brothers and sisters, let us be grateful and let us worship God. Amen. Our Father, we do this morning say thank you for the this greatest of all gifts. Father, I pray for all of us here this morning. Some really are struggling with suffering. Others with sin. God, I pray that this offer of joy that is laid before us, this better possession, this abiding possession, we would love it more than anything. That we would love you more than anything. God, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that we, because of him, get to dwell in your presence forever. The thing that all of us here who believe in Christ want more than anything. So God, I pray that you would keep us faithful. I pray that your promise would be better than all the fleeting pleasures that this world has for us. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.